Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Welcome everyone, thanks for downloading our episode of the podcast. But before we start, I want to talk about promoting the pod. This is our 33rd episode, we've got over 90,000 downloads, 110 five-star reviews on Spotify and 101 ratings at 4.9 stars on Apple. But we need more help to spread the good news. So if you like what we do, get busy and please give us a five-star review somewhere. Our guest today is Matt Harding, who served in the Royal Artillery uh, and also had the misfortune to be my troop commander, but he probably doesn't want to mention that as we're going on. And on this podcast, we're going to be talking about his deployment to Bosnia and the impact operations in that country had on him. The situation around the war in the former Yugoslavia is extremely complex. Uh, not only did war fighting take place in Europe, it also saw ethnic cleansing and a type of organised killings of civilians and military personnel last seen in Nazi-occupied countries in World War II. And Matt's going to give us a bit of a flavour of that as we go on. So, thanks for coming to the pod, Matt. Can you start by telling us what year you, what year you joined the army, what made you enlist, and what you did prior to the Bosnia deployment? Certainly. First, firstly, I, I thought it was you that was the troop commander. I don't know if I got that the way, wrong, wrong way around. That's certainly, certainly how you behave. So, <laughs> so I, I joined the army way back in 1985, I think, and it was really uh, an, an unplanned move, calculated at getting up my father's nose, and um, that absolutely worked. He had uh, planned for me a, uh, a, a fabulous career, an arranged place at, at Oxbridge, um, and generally sort of following the, uh, the, the, the family family pattern, but that didn't really fit my personal ethics. So um, I bunked off school one afternoon and went off to do uh, the selection for um, Royal Marines officer training, um, which I managed to scrape through somehow. Um, but uh, in those days, they had one intake 
per year and um, uh, the next intake was some 13 months hence so I went off and did the army one and they said great you can come next month and I went back to announce the good news to my uh, to my to my happy family, uh, who were not very happy for, for for much longer, unfortunately. But that that's essentially uh, why I joined the army. It wasn't a it wasn't a, a very well pre planned strategy. It just uh, just sort of happened, and I rolled into it and arrived in Sandhurst in September 1985. Had your old man been in the army? Had he, Matt? No, absolutely not. His uh, his family during. The Second War. There, 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 there are a family of landowners and farmers, basically. So during the uh, during the Second War, they were involved uh, in food supply, merchant navy, um, and uh, a very, very long way from the front line. My my mother's uh, family were very different. My uh, grandfather on my mother's side fought with the Chindits in Burma. Um, his father was uh, was at several of the significant battles of the First World War and uh, and all of his uh, his brothers uh, most of them actually fell in the in the First War. So you went to Sandhurst as a, a non-grad, which was quite was it unusual in the mid eighties? I remember we used to get quite a few young troop commanders who hadn't been to university but gone straight to Sandhurst. Yeah, I mean it was probably it was probably about fifty fifty in those days, and of course uh, it was known as the graduate course and the proper course um, because the uh, the graduates clearly got a much easier easier run of things as they do in uh, so much in life. But no, there was there was tremendous rivalry between the two courses. Frankly, they're not terribly different; they're about the same length and they continue they carry most of the same sort of things. Um, the difference being, as a graduate comes out of Sandhurst with two pips, and a non graduate comes out. With one pip, and that's pretty much by the by now, isn't it? You have to be a, uh, you have to have a degree to go to Sandhurst now, I believe. I really don't know. Actually, I, I, I'm so far removed from it, I really don't know. I thought the difference between the two courses was less um, cutlery on the table. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really I'm relieved, Kev. Of course, that you that you now know that cutlery does go on the table, yes. which is uh, certainly certainly an improvement from previous years. Yeah, eat with he doesn't eat with his hands as much anymore, Matt. You know, you, you made an impression on him. So, um, what happened after you finished Sandhurst training? I was—I actually joined Sandhurst with a with a view of uh, becoming an infantier, uh, and I was sponsored into Sandhurst by the Duke of Edinburgh's Royal Regiment. Lord alone knows what they've become now, but they were basically my local infantry regiment. But having spent uh, a few nights uh, cold and wet at Sandhurst, I decided that that probably wasn't the life for me, and um, was uh, seduced to uh, joining the Gunners. So uh, directly after Sandhurst, newly commissioned officers zoom down to Larkhill and do the young officers course or the YO's course, as it's known. And I think it's about three months where you basically work out which is the pointy end and which is the blunt end of a gun, uh, how to uh, pass azimuth to, to guns, how to run a CP and uh, and all of those good things. Um, so you turn up in your gun, your first gun regiment, knowing a little bit more than you did before you went to uh, to Wyo's course, but not nearly as much as your average uh, gun number one, I guess. So directly after um, Wyo's course, I went out to a self-propelled gun regiment in Gutisloe in uh, in Germany, four uh, seven field regiment, uh, which was an Abbott regiment at the time, part of uh, what was affectionately known as the covering force in the uh, in the old Cold War deployment. 
uh, in uh, in British Army of the Rhine. So uh, so the plan was basically that the covering force uh, went went forward close forward to the uh, to the inner German border and tried to slow down the Russian hordes whilst everybody else. Uh, deployed, I think it was probably a bit of a, a forlorn hope uh, in in <laughs> ancient parlance. And uh, yeah, range of an abbot wasn't got binned out because it had one o five shell wasn't very effective and uh, didn't have much range as well. So he'd been up against it far and then. Absolutely, about as effective as a good headbutt against a decent tank. <laughs> well, if you're a Scotsman, mate, the tank's going to suffer, isn't it? Well, exactly. Yeah, and the Scotsman wouldn't. So you know. <laughs> so what tools did you do when? Uh, when you were there, so uh, a, a good quantity of my uh, my first tour was actually spent uh, in Germany. Lots of adventure training. Uh, I led expeditions to the Himalayas, to uh, caving expedition to Sardinia. We went to Cameroon. We went to uh, various other other places. Uh, obviously, the uh, ever present Batus. Uh, training over over in Canada, but it was uh, it, it was at the end of uh, my uh, time in in Germany that I met with uh, General Sir John Learmont, affectionately known as the Raging Bull, uh, who was at that time uh, running Bricksmiths in uh, in in Berlin, and I mentioned that I spoke a few words of uh, of Russian, and he said, "Well, you, a young man, must come and uh, come and visit uh, Bricksmiths." So I went and did a detachment to uh, to Bricksmiths way back when. So this would have been in the late 80s and thoroughly enjoyed myself uh, and got on extremely well with the crew there and very on, very well uh, with uh, with General Learmont. Um, and he decided that that was going to be uh, the career for me. And I was due to go to Durham University to study uh, Russian for three years on an in-service degree, uh, which I think, had I completed it, and I'll give you the reasons that I didn't uh, in, in a moment, would probably have given me a, a very different path in life to the, to the one I've actually, uh, I've actually lived. So I was, uh, I was one month away from going to uh, Durham University. Parents clearly delighted because finally their prodigal son was actually going to go and get an education of his own volition. But a tour of South Armagh, uh, popped its head up uh, for uh, the battery, for battery, funnily enough, um, which obviously became 47, was merged with uh, 73 to become 473 battery later in life, was off to South Armagh. And uh, as a very young man and as a gunner, you didn't get to do proper rural tours of Northern Ireland very often. So uh, I either foolishly or otherwise, you judge, said, I'm not going to go to university. I'm going to go and spend six months in South Armagh. So um, off I went and, uh, and, and deployed. Uh, we, I think we came back. Yes, we came back to the UK. 47 Regiment came back to the UK to go to Thorny Island. And from Thorny Island, we did our uh, NITAT training, as it was called then, uh, Northern Ireland Training Advisory Team Training, I think that stands for. And I was made the IO uh, Intelligence Officer at uh, Bestbrook Mill and absolutely had a blast. It was uh, a really incredible uh, tour. We had some uh, some very sad tragedies, obviously, so I'm not celebrating uh, those. We lost some good people over there and sadly were in the follow-up to the loss of a, of a number of um, dear RUC uh, colleagues. But generally speaking, uh, it was an, an immensely fun uh, tour. Uh, as IO and um, in the, uh, the in theatre at that time, 
I worked very closely with the Force Research Unit, with TCG, with Group, with uh, various other elements uh, of government, um, special branch, uh, and, and really did have the most incredible grounding in how intelligence really worked and what the intelligence really was in the uh, in the in the background of the uh, the conflict in Northern Ireland, and it gave me a very interesting perspective uh, on life. And I think it's interesting. We've we've covered it on a couple of the podcasts. You know, people look at the Northern Ireland campaign and much of the time they just conjure up guys in camouflage patrolling the streets or the fields. But it was the intelligence war and sort of special forces operations that really depleted the IRA to the extent that they they found themselves at the negotiating table. So, you know, Jay, that's a fair point, point to bring up, Matt. Absolutely, but you know I, I, that is not to minimise in any shape or form the uh, the work done by the Green Army, without whom the intelligence uh, nor the special forces could have done what they what they did. And the Green um, Army gathered a lot of intelligence whilst out on the normal patrols. It it not only gathered a lot of intelligence, but it was very successful in drawing attention away from certain uh, intelligence and certain uh, certain things. So it played a very, very important role. And of course, let's not forget, was um, responsible for some very effective uh, kinetic action uh, during some of the, uh, the more heated uh, times of the campaign. It's, it's, quite a, it's quite a difficult subject to discuss uh, in broad conversation now because clearly the world has grown a slightly different perspective on the the troubles as they have become known or the, the the conflict in in northern ireland when as a when as a soldier working in northern ireland and i did several tours throughout my uh, career you clearly form uh, a, an opinion from from one side of the fence and to hear uh, the past being reinvented and and looking at um, you know what really brought um or sort of knowing what really brought peace to northern ireland and then looking at the political spin that has subsequently been put on it is a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow in some in in some ways but um you know i think i think the important thing is that peace by and large is holding a lot of activity under the under the blankets but uh Given uh, given the efforts from all sides of the community, I think uh, a, a fairly firm lid is being kept on things. And a flawed peace is better than no peace. I think we've talked about that a few times before. Absolutely. What else did you do sort of prior to going to Bosnia then? So it was uh, whilst I was in Northern Ireland that, uh, again, working alongside intelligence and special forces, that I thought perhaps that might be the life for me. But again, still pretty young in the grand scheme of things. Uh, I had a uh, sergeant in my intelligence cell who had come from uh, the special OP troop, uh, a chap by by the name of Tony Story, and he told me uh, all about uh, the, the Royal Artillery's own unit, and it sounded very attractive to me. So my aspiration really was to go directly from Northern Ireland, either to Hereford 
or onto uh, the group course and go directly uh, into into that environment. But I think the more people I talked to, particularly the, the people within that environment, it became apparent that I was too young, not mature enough, and, and frankly, without enough life experience to be able to do it effectively. So I decided on an interim step of, of coming to uh, the newly formed uh, Special OP Battery, 7.3 Battery. And I joined uh, 7.3 Battery in, uh, in Dortmund in, I think, late 1990, where obviously uh, I met you guys. We went, I think, I, I completed the, um, uh, the Special OP Battery selection, which was very challenging. Um, I think, you know, probably one of the most challenging things I've ever done. Uh, physically, frankly, I didn't find it uh, very hard because I was quite fit and um, uh, and, and a very keen uh, sportsman. But it was the combination of, uh, of, uh, of mental capacity required all day and all night uh, for day in, day out. And, and the amount of things that we had to learn the, and the degree of expertise that one had to have in radio communications, Soviet tactics, Soviet uh, machinery, uh, etc. There was just a, a never-ending list of things which we had to, had to learn. Uh, survival, escape and evasion, you know, all sorts of bits and pieces. So it really was very, very challenging. And I think, uh, you know, at the end of uh, the end of every week, collapsed absolutely exhausted into my bed, only to to, to start again uh, early on the on the on the following the following Monday. But um, but finish it did, and I and I and I seemed to do. Uh, reasonably well got through the uh, got through the course and i think fairly shortly afterwards we deployed on a, a big exercise up to i think zoltau but i'm i'm maybe misremembering and whilst we were there we got uh, given notice to move to uh, the first gulf war operation uh, granby clearly traveled out out there and that that's a whole other story we can we can talk about that maybe on a uh, on a, on a future date but um as you'll be as you'll be very aware we uh, we went out on the uh, on an uh, on an lsl a uh, logistic ship uh, the Sibelivir, I think, uh, the RFA Sibelivir. Most memorable moment of that of that trip was getting onto uh, getting onto the boat and very arrogantly telling the uh, the officers in the wardroom that uh, I was a very keen sailor and I didn't get seasick. Uh, cue the Bay of Biscay. <laughs> cue the Bay of Biscay three days later in a Force Nine with one of the engines out, which meant we were plodding along at some ludicrously low speed, reeling backwards and forwards. Uh, I I really uh, don't think i've ever wanted to die quite as much in my entire life <laughs> and then the toilets uh, blew back as well if you remember they absolutely did yeah and the, and the and the ship was an absolute mess and we limped i think uh uh we spent a short period of time alongside in gibraltar and then went on to cyprus uh, where they where they uh, tried to fix the hits of thing how did bosnia come about then matt so Bosnia was a, was was right at the very other end of my um, career. So uh, in between times, I spent time with um, uh, one RHA, seven RHA, and I ended up as adjutant of two six regiment following um, uh, staff college, uh, junior division staff college, and uh, I got sent out to Bosnia at the end of Op Grapple, which, if you'll recall 
was the British Army's uh, contingent to UNPROFOR, the United Nations Protection Force in, uh, in, in Bosnia that had been there for some time. I think they deployed in 1992, but fighting uh, intensified considerably whilst they were there and it became apparent that, A, they didn't have enough combat power to be able to fulfil the task that they were there to do and that actually uh, things were going to get an awful lot worse before they started uh, getting better. So the conflict intensified enormously and uh, NATO got a mandate from the United Nations and was involved in the uh, in the conflict and started uh, patrolling the skies um, with significant air power um, and started assisting the troops uh, on the ground. Um, and clearly there was a, a considerable amount of uh, ethnic cleansing and, and war crimes going on at that time. So the air power assisted uh, with that, uh, preventing that, uh, that, that awful uh, set of atrocities. I think a British plane was uh, actually shot down during that time as well, which uh, I think uh, uh, escalated the interest of the British uh, public. Um, and that led ultimately to another UN mandate being signed and it was decided that NATO would send in a, uh, a, a, a force to um, enforce the Dayton Peace Agreement. Um, all, three, all three factions were pulled to the table and um, signed, a, signed a ceasefire and then it was decided to put a, a NATO force in. So, so I was sent down at the end of Op Grapple uh, ostensibly to do a reconnaissance for the artillery element for the NATO deployment. I planned to spend a week there, uh, but being a good OP soldier, I took all my uh, all my kit to stay there as long as I uh, uh, I needed to. And it's a good job that I did because as I arrived, I met um, Brigadier, as was then Richard uh, Dannett, now Lord Dannett, obviously, quite the most impressive individual I think I have ever met in my entire life. Absolutely phenomenal leader, phenomenal soldier, uh, and, a, and an incredible brain. Uh, I bumped into him and uh, we had a bit of a chat about some of the things I'd done in my career to that point. He said, well, now you're here, you might as well stay. Uh, and I got taken really into a, a sort of hybrid uh, brigade reconnaissance role, which which makes it sound an awful lot grander than it than it was. I was I it was me and a driver and a Land Rover, and I was basically shooting around either side of the separation zone, looking for uh, routes and, uh, for the NATO force to uh, to to move in, uh, and also for bits of real estate big enough to actually house them, including um, a full. Uh, um, AS-90 Regiment, which takes up a heck of a lot of uh, real estate, uh, tanks, warriors, you know, you name it. There was a there was a full a full combat brigade, armoured combat brigade, and uh, we had to put them all somewhere. So I had a very very busy job shooting around the place. And if you think you envisage uh, the, uh, the 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 environment at the time, you know, the 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 war had only just finished, and I you know I, I I'm I'm sort of doing those irritating bunny ears is in fin around finished um, because there was lot there were lots of little skirmishes huge numbers of uh, different uh, uh, quite apart from the three main uh, protagonists there were lots of different paramilitary groups yeah they they all broadly had signed up to the uh, to the to the agreement but there were local skirmishes land grabs 
um, organised crime uh, raised its head and uh, like like it so often does at the end of any any conflict. So it was still a pretty spicy uh, environment to work in. What was the most challenging part of your tour from the initial part and and this complexity you moved into? So I think uh, there, there, were, there were a couple of aspects, really. I think there is the, the uh, technical, oblique, professional aspect in that I had so much to do, uh, so much ground to cover. Funnily enough, I, I recently, uh, uh, quite by chance, uncovered my marked-up map, um, which I used for my reconnaissance. And there, there was just a vast amount of ground to cover. Both of you spend a lot of time in reconnaissance and you know just how much work is required to to, to cover large areas and to, to look at this kind of thing. Getting all of that work done in, in, in areas that weren't necessarily cleared of, of hostile forces or indeed of, of, of landmines, unexploded um, munitions, uh, etc. So, so it was professionally really quite challenging. Emotionally, it was really quite challenging in that I was kind of on my own. I had uh, I had a, a fabulous uh, driver, a chap called Sergeant uh, Perry, and and it is to my regret that I don't know where he is now. If he's listening to this, I'd love to get in touch and have a beer because we had a we had a really interesting uh, time over there together. He and I driving around the countryside doing all these uh, acts of daring do. But also there was the uh, the, the fact that the war had just finished mm. and there was horrific detritus of war destroyed infrastructure destroyed communities and no shortage of dead bodies and uh, and evidence of uh, the ethnic cleansing which went on as the forces withdrew and i think there were it was also at a time there weren't a tremendous number of soldiers in an armored brigade who had combat experience who had been uh, in these environments before uh, and therefore there was a there was quite a reliance on an on a on a small number of us who had some yards under the belt and were there not only as uh, leaders of uh, of younger less experienced uh, soldiers and and officers um, but but mentors and, and in some ways counselors uh, so, so, so that was all of those things combined. I think uh, made it a, a really quite challenging, challenging time. Was this around about the time that the the soldiers from an armor battle group got taken hostage by one of the? I can't remember the, the group that it was, but there's a lot of from an infantry battalion got taken hostage. Wasn't that's there? right. Was that yeah. around about that time, Matt? Or no, that no, that that actually happened. That actually happened, I believe, prior to uh, the ceasefire. I think that was those were soldiers from uh, from Unprefor. Um So before my time, uh, I, and I absolutely recall the incident you're, you're you're talking about. It was a long long time ago, and I can't remember the detail. But that was definitely uh, before before I went I went out there. And so fast forwarding now to uh, after the NATO force moved in. And my goodness, was that a feat of uh, logistics. Basically, we had a singular circuit route which covered the whole of the uh, multinational division southwest area and a lead in from the docks at Split. And for those who saw the docks at Split, uh, you think about bringing an entire 
armoured brigade's worth of kit through that tiny little dock and up and down that small road all the way up into into country. It was a massive feat. And uh, working in the brigade uh, headquarters with the logisticians, with the G3 ops, and obviously with the intelligence, looking at the um, the, the I'm, I'm going to call, I'm going to call it the enemy picture because that's what we called it at the time, not necessarily seeing them as the enemy, but it was you know the hot, the, certainly the hostile picture, and 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 managing this this movement where you've got lay loaders and tanks and AS-90s and warriors going down these tiny little tracks, you know, that were not in the best state of uh, repair. So uh, roads were collapsing. We're having to get Royal Engineers in there to fix them. So, you know, and the, once the route was blocked, obviously nothing nothing moved. So over a period of, uh, of I think, five or six days, I really don't recall seeing the inside of my sleeping bag once, and we were sitting there getting this entire uh, force um, into in, into country. But once we once we had got them into into, into country, we obviously um, were preparing for the cutover from the uh, United Nations uh, rules of engagement to the NATO rules of engagement, which were a good deal more robust and uh, a situation which I personally found highly amusing. And you'll probably maybe think I'm a bit of a ghoul for, 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 for finding it so funny was that there was a, um, uh, an infantry company very close to the brigade headquarters. And I went up to, to visit them one evening and the company commander, fairly young chap, was um, getting a little bit stressed out because every night they had sniper fire coming into their into their position. They couldn't return any any fire. I said, "Well, okay. So at midnight tonight, uh, we change to uh, the NATO rules of engagement. So what I suggest you do is put um, a couple of platoons worth of warrior up against that side of the berm, and any rounds come in." You know, you've got uh, you've got rather than cannons, huge chain guns, GPMGs, and a, and a whole load of angry uh, uh, angry grunts who would who would like to, uh, to to get something back. And lo and behold, at uh, about quarter past twelve, a single round came in, and the contact report read something like uh, contact shooting one round uh, received, twelve and a half thousand rounds returned, no hits claimed. But but uh, rest assured, there were no more sniper rounds that came in uh, to, to that position. <laughs> But I think that brings out a good point because they they pretty much had their own way up until that point, hadn't they? Because the yeah. rules of engagement were, were were lacking, and you know there's some quite shameful episodes throughout that sort of history there, where you had and I'm not just picking on this country, but they just happened to be there. It was their area, but the the Dutch it was at Srebrenica. Srebrenica, yeah, the eight thousand basically yeah. stood by yeah. and let I can't remember who it was, Croats or Muslims or whatever. Was it, it was. Serbs? Weren't they? They took the, the, the Serbs. Yeah. Serbs took. Took the uh, the young men. They and... took, but, yeah, was it Croats they took and killed about thousands of them? Eight thousand, I think, in the end. Yeah, under the under the eye of the the, uh, yeah. the Dutch battle group. Yeah, I think I think what surprised me about it, if you if you watch, it's on YouTube from ninety two to about ninety five when the, the war was at its peak, you know, siege of Sarajevo. If you if you put that footage into black and white, it was all the Second World War. It was the old hatred from there as well. The tactics being used on industrial scale, it was horrendous. And I think, like you say, Matt, once you went in afterwards and you're starting to, you're trying to divide the people that are separated for over 50 years mentally in some places. Mm. So that, so the hatred, in fact, goes back way before that. Centuries, right the way back, it? Right the way back to uh, the, the, the Moorish uh, invasions of the great, great movement south 
of the of the Moors, uh, where there were considerable number of uh, very uh, well documented massacres uh, the other way round. Um, and I think, uh, sadly, grudges have been held yeah. for all this all this time. And um, for many years, and uh, uh, under the, the Soviet regime and Tito, um, they managed to. Uh, hold peace and law and order as was the case in so many places around the world under despotic leadership you know yeah, um all right. uh, they they managed to keep a lid on on a lot of this uh, last century or previous centuries colonial backlash and of course when they uh, when when that all finished then uh, then it then it all kicked off and 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 funny enough even even when we were there and handing out building materials and uh, and and supplies to locals to try and get them to uh, start rebuilding some of the infrastructure, which was absolutely decimated. I, I was personally privy to many conversations through the interpreters, obviously because my language isn't isn't that good, uh, where people were just saying, look, we're, we're not going to bother because as soon as you lot have gone, it's all going to kick off again anyway, mm-hmm. um, which, I, which I think I found emotionally quite hard. Because there were there, there was a lot going on, and we lost we lost a number of uh, a number of soldiers. Uh, a couple of uh, incidents sort of sit sit pretty clearly with me until this day. And to hear that, well, you know, it's a bit of a waste of time you being here anyway. I think was was quite a difficult message. Frankly. You can argue it was ever thus, Matt. You know, we already talked briefly about Northern Ireland. Uh, Absolutely, the Afghan veterans now that have seen what's happened in Afghanistan, yes. and just looking at people talk about Ukraine as if it's the first war in Europe for, for years. But mm. they've completely forgotten about the devastation in the former Yugoslavia, yeah. which is probably Absolutely. on par with what's happening in Ukraine in, in a lot of respects. Mm. Mm. When it was multiple, no. multiple wars, wasn't it, with Bosnia, when they split Yugoslavia? But unfortunately, that was in the 90s and people have got short memory. They, they really have. And, you know, and I think the, uh, the, the initial the initial conflict uh in uh, in uh, croatia um again was 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 quite short and sharp mm. but quite passionately uh, passionately fought by by both sides and then obviously the uh the involvement of the serbs later to make it a make it a three-way civil war and then as i've mentioned before there probably a, probably as many as a dozen uh, you know i'll probably be corrected by by a, by a, a better historian than i but but certainly between 6 and 12 different paramilitary groups um, supporting various flavours of the uh, of the of the desired outcome of each of the forces, it made it incredibly complex. Well, the fact that we still got stabilisation troops in both Bosnia and Kosovo today, thirty years later, just shows that we're nowhere near the end. No, no, it's um, yeah, it it, it, it I, I think you mentioned you mentioned Ukraine. You know, you look at um, I, I've spent time in Ukraine recently, and I think uh, before before I went there, I wanted to be sure of my ground, so I uh, I, I read quite a lot of um, both ancient and recent Ukrainian history, and it is uh, it is an incredibly complex landscape, and you can see absolutely why the uh, the conflict is continuing or has continued for so long in the Donbas. You can absolutely see why Ukrainians, particularly from the West, want to fight so hard to hold on to their homeland. One can understand, I suppose, why the old guard of the former former Soviet uh, Empire hanker after the old days, given uh, the the precarious nature of their position in the in the in the world now. Uh, not that I think there's any 
justification for their invasion whatsoever. But um, you know, you can you can kind of see the reasons from all of the sides as to why it's being fought so passionately, um, which makes me personally believe that um, a, a a favourable solution is, uh, is is some way off. So going back to the uh, the Bosnia your Bosnia tour, what what was the effect the tour had on you? So I think it was the, the process of erosion, of seeing and hearing and experiencing some pretty grim things on a on an almost day by day, week by week basis. We had there was one uh, particular point which which still rings in my ears now, where we had uh, a young patrol from uh, the Light Dragoons who were patrolling one of the uh, the borders between the, uh, the 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 two factions i think it was called um, border anvil from memory down a route which was uh, not shown to be mined it was a very very foggy day i recall and they went over a mine the uh, the vehicle flipped caught fire with uh, with a crew of 3 uh, in the back the ammunition load in the vehicle started to cook off they couldn't get out the vehicle behind them, again, with a with a similar fairly young crew, were trying to get to uh, the vehicle. We at Brigade Headquarters were listening to all of this unfold live on the radio, trying to get aid through to them. Helicopters couldn't fly. We couldn't get uh, vehicles down the down the route. And of, of course, you know, you both you both know these things uh, do uh, do tend to unfold quite quickly. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, and then I realized that the uh, the vehicle commander was actually the... Uh, the baby brother of a good friend of mine who I went to Sandhurst with, and uh, sadly, all three of those soldiers uh, didn't didn't come out of that come out of that alive. Um, and I think that was one of the uh, one of the incidents that really started to uh, affect me. Another one was uh, during a reconnaissance up in the northwest of the country. Went into a, a small town where the Serbian forces had withdrawn and basically strung up anybody they could find from a doorway or a, a lamppost or a signpost and booby trap bodies and, and and all the rest of it. So driving into this town is, is probably one of the first people had been there afterwards. Again, that was a kind of another incident, which was a, which was a period of, uh, I mean, people, people have to deal with, a, with, with far worse in their life. I'm not saying that these in, were in, in any way comparable to some of the things that uh, both soldiers and civilians have to deal with. But I think it was the sort of erosion on me that started to kind of get to me. I finished that tour definitely with some, uh, with, with a debt to go back to my mind to, to, to do some fixing, to try and get myself uh, uh, back to being the, the happy-go-lucky person I was, I was before, suffered uh, with what I now know to be depression, but certainly didn't know uh, at the time. 
It's uh, it's interesting you use the term erosion there because in my experience, it happens in two ways. You can either have a big bang event, which affects you almost you know instantaneously, or you have that drip, drip, drip as you referred to. You know, it, it just chips away to you, t- t- you can't cope anymore. Yeah, cumulative. Yeah, yeah, cumulative. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah cumulative. cumulative. It just builds up and it builds that pressure up. No, absolutely. I think it was probably uh, not consciously, but uh, was mm-hmm. was uh, quite instrumental in my decision to subsequently leave the army. The one or two other things happened after that, which uh, kind of tri- contributed. But um, you know, I had uh, I had two young kids. I'd seen a lot of a lot of dead kids whilst I was over there, and I thought I really don't know that I want to load any more of this on my mind yeah. going forward and decided to, to leave. But, um, you know, I think, I think funny enough at that point, I, uh, I kind of drew a bit of a line underneath, underneath it and puffed my chest out and squashed it all down and just kind of, kind of got on with it really. And I don't know that at that time I felt that, that I carried any long-term damage from, uh, from my time out there. You left knowing that your time was up and you went to the civilian world. How did you cope? I mean, because it's, it's a transition in itself, that. It's quite a stressful time. You know, you're looking for a new job. You're trying to find a new role. You've left a, a lifestyle and a vocation behind you because it's not just a job, the Army. And you had those experiences that you've already described. So just what happened after you left the Army at, at that point? I was incredibly fortunate in that my, my path out of the Army was quite a simple one, and I went straight into another very good job with uh, with plenty of money and and a, and a fairly good uh, support network so in itself that wasn't difficult and i think i'd come from such a high pressure um, stressful environment i i entered a period of calmness because the the job that uh, that i ended up doing was certainly nobody was shooting at me uh, it was uh, it was a, was a period of uh, of calm in my life but I was definitely drinking too much. I was definitely not sleeping very well. I uh, tried to keep myself physically fit and healthy, but wasn't doing a particularly good job at that. I started to, you know, was very much on a on a on a slightly downward path. And then, sadly, had a uh, a, a major life event in my uh, my partner and the love of my life was killed in a in a in a tragic accident. And it was at that point that the wheels came off Matthew Harding almost completely. And it wasn't necessarily that particular event, as tragic as it was. You know, people do die and, you know, you, you kind of get over it and get on with it. The the reaction was far more severe than that. You know, I really did become very mentally unwell and uh, straight into what we now know to be um, full-on post-traumatic stress disorder and didn't really seek out or get any uh, treatment for some considerable amount of time. You know, I self-medicated. I was um, drinking um, fairly ridiculous quantities of alcohol, abusing Class A drugs, trying to maintain a, uh, a, a quite a busy job and uh, maintain some uh, semblance of fatherhood to my uh, to my two uh, children that I had at the time who were who were more grown up at that point but um but really not very succeeding in, in any of those areas was that method of dealing with the the circumstances you're in was that down to denial or fear of stigma or a combination of both or something else 
I think that's a really good question, and I don't know that I've that I've fully really considered uh, the the answer to that. I think it was probably a mixture of of all of the above. There was then much more than now a tremendous stigma uh, to admitting that you had mental health issues, career, lifelong career limiting uh, issues by saying, look, I've got a I've got a problem with my mental health. You know, you 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 can pretty much could pretty much kiss goodbye to wherever it was you were working and uh, and and indeed the next job as well because there was this you know well you don't want to hire him he's got a he, he's got a screw loose kind of thing so there was that there was also the i think the effect of the illness itself is to uh keep driving you forward into your fear it, you know it is almost it is almost uh self-worsening because you just keep keep fighting forward uh, and and pouring alcohol and substances on top of it to try and uh, keep a lid on the the rage elements and uh, and and then also trying to medicate yourself to sleep every night. You know, it's um it's a toxic, a very toxic cocktail. How did you break? How did you break that cycle? So I did seek help uh, eventually. I had a couple of really quite terrifying episodes for my friends uh, and and family, and a number of people said to me, look. You know, we really do want you to get some uh, get some help. I was fortunate enough to have a have a very good private health plan, so started seeing a uh, private uh, psychiatrist and and really started getting getting some treatment. Although although I have to say, the treatment at that stage didn't end up being particularly helpful. I um, very heavily medicated, and I went to see. A, uh, a counsellor in uh, Harley Street, as recommended by my uh, my psychiatrist, and I was having a particularly bad day, and I started to describe to him uh, something which had been really bothering me and keeping me awake for several days. The counsellor burst into tears in front of me and expressed that um, he really didn't feel that he could deal with me because I was so uh, so unwell that he just didn't think that he could he was strong enough to to listen to some of the things that I was telling him and wanted to check me into a a a facility for other other counselors i left that meeting feeling a bit let down frankly um and i walked straight into a pub drank a ridiculous quantity of alcohol and then that night uh, tried comprehensively to take my own life and very very fortunately and i'm very pleased to be here uh, saying this today, I uh, I was um, as effective at that as I am at map reading, um, and completely and, and complete and completely failed. And um, the uh, the A and E uh, consultant said to me a couple of days later, he said, "Look, I've absolutely no idea how you pulled this off, but it looks like you're going to live." He said, "I really didn't think that this was ever going to be possible, but you're you're going to make it." And that was a turning point. Funnily enough, to see my uh, my uh, two children uh, and my parents standing by my bed, having been told this is it, he's he's absolutely comprehensively done for. And I had the most wonderful counsellor uh, after that event, who was part of the um, crisis uh, mental health team at uh, at Farnborough, sorry Farnham Road uh, Mental Hospital in uh, in in uh, Guildford, who was just tremendous, and he came came and spent time with me every single day. And just kind of made me feel that you know what, don't be ridiculous. There's a, there's there is another way. 
you know, you can you can get up and you can get out of this. So I stopped drinking, stopped taking drugs. Uh, I say I stopped drinking. Those of you know know me know that I do still enjoy a a, a beer or two. Uh, but I I stopped I stopped drinking ridiculously. Um, stopped drinking uh, in in the style of Ozzy Osbourne and stuff. Drinking <laughs> in the style of uh, yeah, a, a relatively normal human being, um, and just got better and better. And when I did get to a uh, a period of strength everything else started to fall into place for me. You know, I, I started to rekindle friendships that, that, um, I mean, friends stuck with me, but a lot of friends didn't necessarily know how to be with me. Yeah. Uh, and therefore it was very difficult for them to be, you know, I, I, I was, I was constantly a wreck, you know, every time I'd had a few drinks, I used to fall into this pattern of just self-destructive thought. Um, and very, very difficult for, uh, for, for people to be around. It's interesting what you describe there because we've had a number of podcasts with guests who describe very, very similar to you, that path, Matt. And you described also a minute ago about how your friends possibly didn't understand. And I had a real wake-up call in the podcast we did with J.D. Hogg, Neil Hogg, who you know very well. He's talking to me and I just clicked that well, how we just didn't get what was wrong with Neil back in the day. We had the man-up thing. We had the put him and another couple of guys who are suffering from PTSD and nightmares, and our solution was to put them in a room at the end of the corridor. Yeah. And I came off that podcast, and I said to my wife, the guilt I had from that podcast was horrendous, because thinking back to how we treated JD, and I was talking to Kev about it afterwards, and he said, but we didn't understand it. No, and I think that's the challenge, is, is PTSD, you need to be aware of it, that you may suffer from it, but everyone, including the people in the forces, need to know how to deal with it as well because we didn't have a, any background to understanding that. It is no, difficult. absolutely. I, I th- and I think, you know, it, it, is, uh, it, it, is, it is understanding that it, mm. that it hits everybody in, in a different way. And, um, you know, trying to, to, trying to educate people and give them a list of things to look out for is, is virtually impossible it is you know the advice i would give is look at what your friend is normally like and if things are wildly different from that start to ask yourself why and start to dig into that and start to ask open questions uh and um i think um one of the things that uh that that um, we do. I know we're going to talk a little bit about uh, charities and the association, but one of the things that we do is try to signpost people to easy steps that they can get to in order to get some hooks into reality, yeah. to try and get themselves to a point where they can hold themselves up enough out of where they are to turn back and look at themselves and say, do you know what, mate? You're not right. You need help. Yeah, I think... I think uh because we've done a number of episodes now talking about PTSD. You know, we've had JD, we had Chris, who came on board as well about a civilian incident rather than military. And it is, how do you recognise it? How do you help somebody? And how can they help themselves? It is it's such a, ma- a massive challenge. Because you don't know if you've got it, do you? You, you can see no. without knowing. And, that's and, I, and I think and I think people, people react quite badly to being told that yeah. they have an issue yeah. and probably quite understandably you know i think it's a realization that somebody has to come to uh themselves so it's creating an environment mm-hmm. and creating a, a a dialogue that allows them to realize actually yeah. that that things are not 
as they should be. I like, I like you uh, saying as well, today, people are not judged in the same way it was. 20 years ago, PTSD, mental health issues, the army struggled to recognise it. Civilian Street struggled to recognise it. We're now starting to recognise it much more. But there's still a slight stigma. There are still people there who, who still think the man upbeat and all the rest of it. I think that that's still that attitude is still out there a little bit. And it's also in yourself. You're trying to think, well, it's not. It's not me. It's not. I, I'm not suffering from it. There's a denial, I think, as well for people. That that is absolutely true. I mean, you know, so I I, I think if you take a if you take a hundred year perspective we're getting better oh, because massive, clearly massive. soldiers soldiers in the first war being shot for cowardice um, when they were suffering with um, yeah. with post-traumatic stress disorder or, or, or similar similar illnesses. Uh, and I think a great deal more is, is actually under, understood about it. People understand why it happens. People understand that the brain, it's not about uh, bravery or capability, that the brain has a finite capacity for being put into danger and disobeying its flight reflex, which is yeah, so basically yeah. you're throwing throwing somebody into a situation where they know they're likely to get killed and they keep doing it when everything about their brain is telling them to do something differently. Uh, and it's that conflict which is which is creating these um, different wirings and they and they take a long time to unpick. You're the president of our Special Observers Association, Matt, and I know you do a lot of good work on that, uh, helping people out. Do you find that helping others helps you? Absolutely. And prior to doing that, and whilst I was very much in recovery, a friend of mine who is a, a youth counsellor said to me, I wonder if you might like to come and help our charity. We've got a, a board of really well-meaning trustees some excellent uh, quality counsellors, but the whole thing is just chaotic and we're not achieving what we need to achieve because we don't have somebody uh, with, a, with, a, uh, with the right communication and leadership skills at board level that can, that can structure us and, and get us going forward on, on the right strategy. And they made it clear, very clear that they didn't want me to get anywhere near the clinical side and get anywhere near the, uh, the, 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 sort of the whole delivery end of the organisation. It was purely the strategy of the charity. So I um, I started to uh, to work. It was called Number Five Counselling, and it provides free uh, counselling to uh, young people in the Reading area. And obviously, I grew up uh, over over in that area, and delivers thousands of counselling sessions to young people who would otherwise go completely untreated because counselling on the on the NHS is uh, subscribed out for very long waiting lists. It wasn't until the Reading Rock Festival the following year when I went to pick up my daughter and a friend of hers uh, to, to drive them home and her, and her friend said, oh, where have you been? I said, well, I've been at a, a board meeting with uh, my charity, which is, uh, which is number five. And she said, my God, if it wasn't for number five, I wouldn't be here. This young lady uh, was sadly very seriously sexually assaulted a very long time ago, uh, had nobody to turn to from a very strong religious uh, family who really didn't want to know about it and couldn't get counselling on the NHS. And, and, and the number five charity absolutely stepped in and changed this young lady's life. Now, she today is, uh, I won't say anything which will even remotely identify, she's got a very high-powered job, she's incredibly successful, got a fantastic degree from a, uh, from a fabulous university. And that story in itself said, this is your path. 
you need to do more of this because I got so I got so much from that interaction that I sought out to do more of it. So I started fundraising for some uh, military uh, charities. There's, a, there's an amazing charity uh, called Pilgrim Bandits who work predominantly with um, unconventional soldiers, shall we say. Um, so from the, from, the, from the spectrum of the sort of people that, that you've been uh, talking to and recognise that uh, people who've come out of maybe special forces or uh, other uh, similar type type roles uh, because of serious uh, injury or mental health issues or whatever suddenly have a huge part of their identity missing and they for, therefore they organize adventurous training type uh, events for uh, seriously injured soldiers for example they reenacted the cockleshell uh, heroes uh, raid in canoes uh, with a with a number of soldiers, all of whom were either multiple or indeed total uh, amputees, and canoed all the way down and and, and completed the same mission in the same uh, time frame. Which is absolutely phenomenal. Supported soldiers uh, in uh, in uh, round the world cycling, in in phenomenal rowing or swimming or you know canoeing down uh, rapids or whatever it may be, uh, and really. Uh, making a tremendous difference to the holistic recovery of, uh, of of some of these these people. So I've been doing some work uh, with them, and reciprocally, they have uh, given a considerable amount of funds to some of uh, the uh, Special Observers Association uh, folks over the years. Some of our um, some of our people who have needed uh, a little bit of uh, financial help. Pilgrim Bandits have, on a number of occasions, put their hand in their pocket and ponied up and really helped us out. They are a phenomenal bunch of people. Go and look up their website, give them some money, support them in whatever way you can. They're, they're really, really wonderful. But yes, it's, it's, uh, so the association I think I've been involved in uh, since, uh, since it was formed at our 30th anniversary, 10 years ago up in Catterick, we formed it and um, volunteered to be uh, on the council and, uh, and have been, uh, been part of the council uh, ever since and uh, by default have been coerced into being uh, president again um, now. So, um, so we're, we're, we're a funny old bunch. We do, um, we, we do a lot of work behind the scenes, a lot of quiet work. Uh, with people who need uh, support outside the chain of command. We don't deliver any counselling or mental health um, aid um, ourselves. We, um, we, sign, we signpost very much to uh, trusted, trusted advisors. Uh, PTSD resolution is, is one, certainly the, um, the general, our patron, is a, uh, a keen supporter of that, uh, of that particular charity. But we also provide lots of other advice, you know, legal or just general life mentoring for folks who um, have um, who are making the transition to uh, to, to to come out of a, a really quite frenetic uh, military career, and bearing in mind that some of our soldiers have spent longer in Afghanistan than uh, a soldier would have spent had he fought World War One and World War Two back to back. It's really quite a sobering way of looking at just how much uh, combat these these people have seen. Um, so helping them move on with their life in, in, in many ways or just helping them pick up the pieces when things go wrong because things do go wrong in everybody's life and everybody needs a bit of a bit of a hand up some sometimes uh, and, and that's what that's what we do. From the people we have just talked on this podcast with, one thing that's perfectly clear is you don't cure PTSD. No. You don't cure that, that, that mental side. 
you learn to co- coping mechanisms to get on with your life. Every so often, you may well have a dip again. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that what you found in your case, Matt? I, I think so. I, I would say the reason I'm, I'm hesitating is I'm thinking in, in, in recent years, much less. Although I think I'm particularly good at managing myself now. I avoid things which I know are going to trigger me. I will avoid certain news stories. I will avoid certain types of movie or book because it takes me to a place which um, which fosters and nurtures those thoughts which I really don't want to to, to come back. You know, I I, I have dealt with the uh, the the things that that um, I was I, I was part of and uh, made the sort of the mental leap that I can't do anything about them now. Uh, but sure, you know, still uh, in the in the in the wee small hours when uh, when one can't sleep and the, uh, you're wondering uh, wondering how dragons blow out candles or whatever it is you think about when you're uh, <laughs> when you when you're trying to get to sleep in the middle of the night, they, uh, they 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 do come back. But I don't. I think it's been a very long time since I experienced uh, any of the true symptoms of PTSD. And I think, you know, you, you you talk to people who suffered far, far worse than I, they literally find themselves transported back to to the incident. I think I've, I read something on, uh, on Facebook or Twitter or something the other day, when you ask a veteran when the last time he was over there, very often the question is every night, and uh, and and for some people that is absolutely the case. But but for me, it it is it's very much in its place now. You know, I, it's it is it is a lifetime ago. I feel like I'm a very different person, and I and I channel it into trying to help others who are suffering similarly to I did. Well, thanks for that, mate. I know that was quite a difficult conversation in places, and uh, we appreciate your frankness, but. We always finish off with a bit of lightheartedness, and that's Desert Island Ditch, which is the guest choice of book, film, and luxury item. So, Matt, what have you picked? I thought long and hard about books because I am a fairly prolific uh, reader and have been uh, throughout my life. But I thought if I had to have if I had to have one book, I find myself travelling the world a great deal in my current role. And I'm always staggered by my own ignorance when I start talking to uh, to, to people who've, who've who've grown up there and how little I know about the history and the culture and all the rest of it. I, I read recently uh, uh, Mars' um, complete history of the world, which I found absolutely fascinating, but not very good as a reference book because it's very much told as a story. So I, I, I looked at the Times' uh, complete history of the world uh, as my book because I thought wherever I went in the world, I could at least flick to that page uh, and look up the ancient and modern history of where I am and signpost myself to, to future study. Film choice, again, is a funny one. Um, you, you both will, will resonate with this, where you've, you, you're sitting in a, in a ready room or a guard room somewhere, or you're the ARF commander, or, and they've only got two films, and they go on uh, time and time and time and time again, and uh, they, uh, they, they stick with you in your mind, and for some reason, for the entire rest of your life, you can't, you can't not go and watch them. Uh, one, of, one of those films, for me, was Highlander, and the other one was The Shawshank, Redemption, both of which um, I, I I had whilst doing a uh, a job. They were the, they were literally the two. I think we had three films: those two and Trading Places with Eddie Murphy, and we literally watched them continuously, twenty four hours a day. So I think I uh, my life would not be complete if I didn't have at least one of them with me to uh, to last me till the uh, to the end of time. Luxury item, and this doesn't surprise me when you can t- see what this is. Well, you know, uh, as you can tell by my uh, my slim physique, um, <laughs> food is 
<laughs> food is very very important to me um, <clears throat> and uh, I have a, a I have an, a, a, an uncle had an uncle who was a who was a famous chef and my mother was an amazing cook so cooking is my thing uh, and you look into my kitchen and there's every gadget you could possibly uh, possibly imagine so I couldn't really be uh, without something from my kitchen and if I had to choose one thing it would be my set of kitchen knives so that I could create fantastic food and, and keep my body in the shape of a proper senior officer <laughs> Are we allowed to name your famous uncle because I've got a bit yeah, of a debt one I've got a bit of a debt I want to say about him Is that... Of course, no, by all means, yeah. So Matt's been very modest when he says he had a, a quite a famous uncle he, he's, Your uncle was Keith Floyd Keith Floyd? Uh, Classic. Yeah. And and they still show him on TV. He comes yeah, every so often. Certainly do. But anyway, so Timeless. for some for some mad reason, after we came back from the Gulf, Matt invited me and a couple of lads to his wedding. And I believe um I think I sat at the table with your uncle, the same table. I think, I think you I did, yeah. And he said, he said, Who was that man? I couldn't understand a word what he said. I could only cook menu A and B, right? <laughs> and now, now, 30 years later, I take more interest in food. But I often say to my wife, what a wasted opportunity. I was sat next to him and I could have a conversation with him. Um, I, be, I think I remember being more enthralled by his, the, his young girlfriend he had with him. Yeah, that, you know, one, he was one of, one of five marriages. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to catch him up, but, uh, but that, that, one, that one didn't go particularly well. Uh, that was, uh, I think that was Shauna, wasn't it? The, uh, the, the that young blonde one. That's right, yeah. yeah. No, but, you know, funnily enough, I, I, I never thought he was a particularly good cook, personally. He was a great, uh, he was a great TV personality. Oh, brilliant. Uh, and, and, he knew, and he knew so much about food. You know, his, uh, his knowledge of food was absolutely encyclopedic I remember he was good entertainment at the, t- uh, at the wedding as well so uh, some funny moments <laughs> just I don't know if you videoed it it's probably just as well you didn't <laughs> I did no I did actually yeah so I've, I've, I've got videos of all of them I've got a video wall in my uh, in my study <laughs> all of them it's not it's not my fault I'm addicted to marzipan <laughs> All right, uh, thanks. Fair enough. <laughs> and on that bombshell, Kev, we'll move on to your choice of book this it's week. The, uh, it's called Afghan Napoleon by Sandy Gore. Everyone might, uh, hopefully people will still remember Sandy Gore from the old Is days. Is he alive? Is he still alive? I didn't check to see if he was alive or dead. So oh. I'm going to treat him as alive still. Okay. But in, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, Sandy Gore was always on the TV, international reporter. Anyway, he wrote a book about a guy called and I'll try and pronounce it properly, Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was the, the lion in Afghanistan during the Russian uh, invasion. So in 1979, when the Russians invaded, obviously Afghanistan, very tribal, uh, had various resistance groups, Mujahideen, all being supplied by various groups, Western powers. Uh, but he was one of the most successful. And Sandy Gore embedded with him for a few weeks and then wrote his story. Uh, and as part of the Northern Alliance, <clears throat> after the Russians went, he started fighting the Taliban, very successful uh, warlord. And unfortunately, two days before uh, September the 11th, when the towers were hit, he was assassinated by a camera crew. So they came in, pretended they were going to do a camera crew in an interview, and they assassinated him. However, his struggle from the Russian invasion through to the Taliban set the scene for the 
for the tribal groups, the Northern Alliance, and the successes of NATO, or the Americans and Brits, when they went in 2001-2002, he'd set the scene, especially in the North. And to note, his son today is now the new Lion, and he's the resistance fighter in one of the valleys in Afghanistan. And he looks exactly the same as his father. But a great book to read, uh, if you like Afghan history. It's the old history. but it just shows, I mean, with just a little bit of weapon systems, a little bit of help from the West, um, how strong they became when they were fighting against what was then the Soviet Union. I remember Sandy Gold doing the reports when they first got the stingers. Yeah, yeah He went yeah. behind the lines on yeah. donkeys with the stinger deliveries and filmed them bringing down Soviet hind attack yeah. helicopters. I mean, they, they, they just did the job. Yeah. He is indeed still alive. Oh, he's still alive. He was born. He was born in 1927, Ferg. So you've probably got something in common with him. <laughs> Share the same birthday. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thanks for that. <laughs> so, what's so, your what's yours then, Carl? What's well, mine's tying in with what Matt was saying, mate, um, about going to countries and not knowing the, the sort of the history. And uh, a couple of months ago, Kev said to me, "Why don't we walk the Hadrian's Wall?" Uh, and I said, "Yeah, we'll do that." And uh, I said, "Let's camp." And Kev goes, no, we're not camping. We're going to get hotels and bed and breakfast. And I got in a bit of a hissy fit and said, you know, why are we doing that? Let's go and, let's go back to the old Wild days. camping. Wild camping is what I called it. Anyway, I relented, threw my teddy in the corner. And we were one section of Hadrian's Wall. And I was looking out across this wall and the heavens opened up. And I had the worst soaking I've had in years. And we got to this barn. I was never more grateful to be in a... Barn with Kev and mother mate farting the way they were. I even had to go and sleep in another room because I was like sleeping with, with two buffaloes with sucking chest wounds, just like being back in the army. But anyway, it's an amazing structure. I didn't realize the full extent of it. You know, what I mean, it was more than just a barricade, it was a whole community along the length of it. It was uh, required a vision and an outstanding level of engineering skill we couldn't master today. It was 80 miles built in under 10 years. We can't even bring a railway line in on time. Can't even build a nuclear power station. No, no. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, when you think about the tools they use, the manpower, the surveying, and, they, and and again, when you say 10 years, and that's to build all those little forts all the way along yeah. as well. And, and all ditches, those ditches, the big ditches. It's unbelievable. It was four metres high, and it was rendered white as well, which I never knew, so it could be also it was a, a visual sign of power as well. And uh, one of the things I was reading in this book was it tells you about a load of tablets, wood tablets, which are essentially letters they found at Vindolanda Fort. And uh, reading these letters from soldiers going to and forth, it's all the same complaints of modern soldiers. Can you send me socks? The food's crap. Um, you know, and then you read about how the, the weights they carried, the amount of digging they did. And the terms of service were broadly similar to what we did as well. 25 years in, you got your pension which was uh, citizenship and a piece of land and you could retire. Uh, women's rights weren't too good. Your kids got to be Roman citizens, but your wife didn't for some reason. Um, and there's bright museums there at Vindolanda, housesteads, and it's obviously got the beauty of the Cumbrian and Northumbrian landscapes. And it's a real testimony to the power and reach of the Roman Empire. And if you're southern, you might not be able to hack the weather, but if you fancy a challenge, get up there and give it a walk. I'll tell you something that you may or may not know about Hadrian's Wall. That it is, it is not it is not now and never has been the border between England and Scotland. Correct, yeah. And I don't, 
Empty things are not very effective because you're clearly down here. <laughs> he you can't keep a Scott out, mate. swim around it. <laughs> Matt, that's it for another episode, Matt. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, to you, the listener, if you continue support and suggestions, please keep them coming in. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And I said at the start, give us a review on iTunes or on Spotify. It'd be great. And finally, thanks to Nick Beale for his continued support and sponsorship to the series and offering technical support for his company, ISA. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.